Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 34, it says, And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. In the last several weeks, we've examined the events that took place prior to the crucifixion in chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. The events that take place during the crucifixion from verse 22 Through verse 37 and soon we will look at the events following the crucifixion in verses 38 through 47. Our attention now turns to the cry from the cross in verse 34 and then the confusion around the cross in verses 35 and 36 and then the consummation or the death of Jesus, the servant on the cross in verse 37. Many people are uncomfortable with the subject of death. And for good reason. The subject of death is typically forced upon us. Our loved ones face the bitter diagnosis of an imminent death. The the knock comes at the door and we hear the shocking news about our loved one. We are, for the most part, unprepared for death. And even those familiar with the story of Jesus, even those who understand at least in part and have some knowledge of his death, they're bothered by the details. Yet there's a reason why the Holy Spirit has devoted so much space to this death scene. It is the most familiar death scene in the history of humanity and all of human existence seems to lead up to this point. The garden, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and then Judah. The story of the judges and then the kings, the divided kingdom, the estrangement, the captivity, the return. And then the coming of Jesus, all of humanity has been orchestrated around this one event. Jesus is crucified. And remember what I've told you, one third of the New Testament is devoted to the last week of the life of Jesus. And one third of the last week is devoted to this death scene. Jesus was crucified. The death was prophesied. It leaves men mystified. And I think it's safe to say that the final words of Jesus are more analyzed than every deathbed quotation of every famous man and every famous woman who's ever lived. And so we go to the scene in verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The ninth hour has come. 
Remember, Jesus was placed on the cross sometime around 9 to 9.30 in the morning. Jesus hung on that cross till 12 noon. And then at 12, a darkness descended over the land. And from about 12 to about 3 o'clock, there is this deep, impenetrable darkness. And the darkness accentuates this profound sense of loneliness and separation. The darkness speaks of the separation from the light. And for six hours, Jesus has been racked with pain, with hideous nausea and the abysmal evil of the burden of sin. Three hours in darkness. And then a light begins to appear. And it begins to return. Herbert Lockyer writes about those three hours of intense, terror-filled darkness. Nothing is said. Lips were sealed. Therefore, how can we penetrate the significance of such a period, meditating upon the cry escaping the lips of Jesus as he emerged from such darkness, sacrilegious curiosity and unholy intrusion will not unveil the secret of all he suffered of divine justice as he becomes the bearer of sin of the world. The middle saying of the cross forces us on our faces before God, unquote. As Dr. G. Campbell Morgan states in his remarkable study, The Crisis of the Cross, he writes, At the commencement of this study, I would place it on record, not idly and not for mere sake of doing so, but under the urgency of great conviction that I'm deeply conscious of approaching things too high, Too profound for the finality of my statement. In other words, G. Campbell Morgan, one of the great, great preachers of all time in the English language said, we're coming upon a subject where it cannot be exhausted and almost anything you say seems superficial. Jesus cries with a loud voice. You see, many human beings have experienced cries of sorrows at death. Many have experienced feelings of terror and utter abandonment. Those of you who have lived for any length of time, you've lived long enough tragically to bury your mother or your father. And sadly, some of you have had to bury your children, brothers and sisters. But there's something different about the death of Jesus. The death of Jesus isn't simply the sad story of an unjust execution. And it's interesting that Matthew chapter 27 verses 45 and 46 and Mark chapter 15 here in verses 33 and 34 choose to include only this statement from the cross. And I think that it's because of the enormous impression that it must have made on Matthew and that it must have made on Peter, who is informing Mark of these circumstances. We're about to approach the majesty and mystery of our redemption by the sacrifice of Jesus. Now, remember that there, the New Testament records seven sayings from the cross. The first 
Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. The second, today you will be with me in paradise as Jesus speaks to the thief next to him. The third, woman, behold your son. And then he repeats, behold your mother. And then here, this statement, what some have called the fourth window. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mark quotes the Aramaic version of Psalm chapter 22, verse 1, and then quickly translates the phrase into the Greek language for the benefit of the person who's reading Mark or listening to the gospel. So what, we, what can we glean from that? Well, the death of Jesus is prophetic fulfillment. Remember, just like I said, that one third of the New Testament is devoted to his death. One third of the entire Bible, one out of every three verses, focused like a narrow funnel into the prophetic fulfillment of the identity of Jesus. There's not just one prophecy that might be excused or two, you might chalk up to coincidence or three, you might begin to be a little bit disturbed. But there's not just three prophecies. There's not just 30. There's not even a hundred. There's not even 200, but 300 prophecies converge on the life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. In Psalm 22, in verses 1 through 21, we see Christ's suffering and crucifixion in verses 22 through 31 of Psalm 22. The scene shifts to the resurrection. And by the way, in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, it explains that Jesus is no longer on the cross. The psalm is filled with praise in the church and to Israel and to the Gentiles. But in Psalm 22, we see this fog-like prophecy where the soldiers are gambling for his garments in Psalm 22:18 the taunts of the enemies about his father being able to deliver him in verse 8 and then Jesus quotes Psalm 22 verse 1 my god my god why have you forsaken me why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning in Psalm 22 verse 2 the scene shifts from darkness And light and then light and darkness, the reproach of the people in verses six through eight. No help is offered to him in verses 11 and 12. His hands and his feet are pierced in verse 16. The people stand staring in verse 17. And you think, what? How is such a thing possible? How can people peek into the future and see so much? A fantastic coincidence? Think about how stupid you would have to be to suggest that all of those prophecies were put in later in order to make the story of Jesus make sense. Nothing could be further from the truth. And by the way, the final three statements are, I thirst, it's finished, and Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The first three statements of the cross were connected to the needs of others. The last three words were related to the need and the accomplishment of Jesus. But what about this one? What about this cry that emerges after three hours of unbearable pain and unspeakable darkness? In what sense has God forsaken Jesus? God is holy. 
God must punish sin. God must forever dissociate himself from sin. William MacDonald writes, the Lord Jesus had identified himself with our sin. He was paying the penalty in full, unquote. And so we begin to approach this circumstance and we ask what is happening. And Matthew and Mark link darkness and desertion in almost the identical language. And if you peer back in time and you go to the oldest book written in the Bible, the book of Job, chapter five verse four you see this enigmatic statement those who meet in darkness in the daytime who grope in the noonday as if it is the night the night before the crucifixion jesus told the religious leaders and elders this is your hour this is the power of darkness in luke twenty two fifty three. In the most famous poem, one of the most famous poems in the English language, Alfred Lord Tennyson wrote The Charge of the Light Brigade. Some of you were forced to memorize it as a child, half a league, half a league, half a league onward. But there's a point in the poem where it says, theirs is not to reason why, theirs is but to do and die. But Jesus does ask why. In suffering and Humanity, the Son, asks the Father, why? How can a loving Father explain desertion to a faithful Son? In sudden and what seems like an inexplicable separation, Jesus quotes the Psalms. And it reminds me of something. That many people, when they know That the darkness is coming. When they know that the final moments are drawing near. They'll ask a loved one to come and bring the Psalms and read it to them. Jesus was being made sin for us, it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Jesus was bearing our sin as the sacrificial lamb of God in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13. You'll remember when John the Baptist first met Jesus, he said, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Peter reflecting on this, says Jesus was suffering for our sin, the just for the unjust. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Paul writes he was bearing The curse of the law. Jesus was in the place where judgment must fall. There's an outer darkness. There's an inner darkness. There's a desperate cry because Jesus is being made sin, not a sinner for us. During those dark hours, sin in some unknown way takes possession of all of his faculties. He pays the penalty of sin by his death. And the loudness of the cry reveals the intensity of the anguish. And so what causes God to separate or distance himself from the servant? It's sin. It's always sin. Sin is the one thing that will cause God to withdraw from you, from me. Jesus was sinless, perfect, holy. All of that's true. It wasn't his own sin that caused God to forsake Jesus. It was mine and yours. 
It was our sin. And sometimes we're reluctant to reflect on the fact that Jesus not only bore our sin, but in bearing our sin, he experiences this punishing effect of a fracture between the Father and the Son. You know, one of the things as you read the New Testament that often does not cross your mind is the neediness of Jesus. We sometimes don't think of Jesus as being needy, yet he has no home in which to be born in Luke chapter 2 verse 7. Jesus has no place to lay his head in Matthew chapter 8 verse 20. He has no money to pay the tax in Matthew 17 27. There's no one to comfort him in the garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26 40. There's no friend to plead for him when he's falsely accused in Mark chapter 14 verse 50. And now, and now, there There's no God to befriend him when suffering for sin. And later, Jesus will have no grave of his own to be buried in. In Matthew 27, verse 60. And now we begin to understand the the darkness begins to lift just for a moment as we begin to understand in part that Jesus becomes needy in order to meet our need. That's what Paul means in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, when he says, Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he becomes poor. You, through his poverty, might be rich. We sing the song. I'm forgiven. Because he was forsaken. I'm accepted. He's condemned. He has no home so that you might have an eternal inheritance, it says in 1 Peter 1.4. He was poor that you might have all spiritual blessings, Paul writes in Ephesians 1.3. He has no comforter that you might have the comforter in John chapter 14, verse 16. And so the death of Jesus reveals God's utter disdain for sin. Yet it also reveals God's utter delight to save the sinner. You've repeated it since you were a child. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Here in his love, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. The love of God was intended to motivate us not to separate from God or to sin. But rather, so that we would draw close to him. And embrace him. This is interesting to me. A moral life can be led by an unbeliever. There are perhaps unbelievers and make believers who think and live way more decently than you do. But a moral life will never be a substitute for a sinless life. And it is a sinless life that God requires. The death of Jesus is said to be. A redemption. It's called a ransom paid to the holy demands of God for the sinner and to free the sinner from a just condemnation. It is significant that the discriminating word for instead of or behalf of is used in every single passage in the New Testament where the mention of Christ's death is the necessary penalty for bearing sin. Matthew 20, 28, Mark 10, 45, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6. Do 
yourself a favor and look it up. The death of Jesus is the necessary penalty for which he bore for the sinner. It says over and over again in Romans 4.25 and 2 Corinthians 5.21, Galatians 1.4, Hebrews 9.8. In paying the price for our ransom, Jesus rescues you and redeems you and purchases you. Out of the marketplace of sin, Jesus acts in obedience to the law in dying, becoming the penalty. Because sinners have broken the law. The New Testament in the book of 1 John calls this propitiation. Propitiation might sound like a large, unattractive, incomprehensible word, but it means The satisfaction of all of God's righteous demands upon the sinner. Why is this so important to you? Because God is pointing out that all of the righteous demands made against the sinner is satisfied in Jesus. And this is why it's called the gospel. This is why it's called the gospel. I want you to imagine a world in which someone says to you, you know, it's really great what Jesus started, how he died on the cross for your sin. But you have to do something in order to add to that. What kind of nonsense could that possibly be? How could God be less than satisfied with the complete sacrifice of Jesus as if anything you could possibly do could add to that? The death of Jesus not only redeems the sinner, it satisfies God who reconciles us to himself. And so we see the confusion around the cross. Look what it says in verse 35. Let me draw your attention to it. It says some of those, some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Once again, we're reminded of the hardness, the dullness, the cluelessness nature of the mob. When Jesus is calling out to God, some thought that he was calling out to Elijah. Now, I need you to pause for just a moment. Why? Why do they believe that Jesus is crying out for Elijah? I want you to pause. Remember the story of Elijah. This is the man who is taken up in a fiery chariot without the benefit of death. This is the Elijah that the religious leaders and the Jews believe are going to come prior to the coming of Messiah. These people, at least some of those who stood by, believe that Jesus wants to come down from the cross. They believe... That Jesus wants to come down from the cross. I want you to think about this for a moment. They're looking around and they're thinking, look, listen, Jesus has changed his mind. He's saying that all bets are off. Look, get me out of here. Look, I don't want to be here anymore. I've made a mistake. This whole thing about dying. Let's call it off. Because they believe Jesus wants to come down from the cross. Now listen carefully. And can't. You know what they're thinking in their mind? What sane person would be on a cross? And what powerful person would remain on that cross? And there are people who believe that even to this very day. Someone has said, 
Jesus was a buffoon. That he was a buffoon. That how could he in his wildest dreams think that he could die for sin? Because each and every person is responsible for their own sin. They believe in karma. They believe that you have a debt that you accumulate that has to be paid over millions of lives so that you can experience purity. And so they're wondering, will Jesus supernaturally free himself from this cross Look what it says in verse 36. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and take him down. Let me help you understand what it is that you're reading. In John's gospel, in John chapter 19, verse 28, there's the passage of scripture where Jesus says, I thirst Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine. They hear the cry, I thirst. Remember what Jesus said earlier in the temple? If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He said, because I'll give you living water. In the language in which Jesus spoke, which was Aramaic, that word, I thirst, is a single word. David James Burrell says of that one cry, that one word, he says, quote, it is as brief and simple as the wail of a little child. The chronicler makes no comment, attempts no explanation. This is characteristic of the Holy Scriptures. He cries, I thirst. They bring the sponge in response to what would seem that someone is offering to wet his swollen lips. But others stop him and basically say, leave him alone. Let him alone. Jesus is hanging on the cross. The ultimate act of pity for a wicked and a fallen and estranged humanity. But when Jesus experiences need, the pity of one is exchanged for the heartless cruelty of another. Listen to the conversation. Don't help him. Don't comfort him. Let's see if Elijah will come and take him down. Let's see if God will supernaturally intervene and alleviate his suffering. And the same conversation takes place every single day because people who are in a hospital room will stand next to that bed and say, why won't why won't somebody help him? Why won't somebody help her? And these people don't understand. Or they misrepresent the death of Jesus. Some have gone so far as to say that the doctrine of substitution is immoral on the ground that God couldn't in righteousness lay the sins of the guilty on the innocent. And so they hear that expression and they see it. They they see it. They read about it in the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And they see the sacrifices and they see the rams and the bulls and the goats and they see the religious Jews placing their hands on the sacrifice and they ask the question how is it possible that the guilty don't have to pay because of what the innocent have to go through and so they say this is immoral 
God would never in righteousness lay the sins of the guilty on the innocent and the claim might have some merit except for one compelling reason. And that is that the son is willing. The son is willing to serve as the substitute. The son is a willing son who comes from heaven. Jesus was willing to do this. And by the way, this is what chaps me about the new Bible series on the History Channel. I'm grateful that the great themes of the Bible are being introduced to a group of people who would otherwise not have anything to do with the Bible. But it really bothers me. That when I see Abraham offering his son Isaac, that the son Isaac is pictured as a small adolescent boy or a young boy, which isn't consistent with the Bible. When Isaac was being sacrificed or being brought in Genesis chapter 22, he was big enough to throw the old man on the pyre. And so in the movie, you have this young man begging his father saying, Dad, Dad, stop. Dad, are you nuts? What kind of a nutcase offers his son to a God he doesn't see? And you, see, you hear this, this complaining, this struggling, this, this somehow perverse situation. And in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham leaves. He travels with, for two days with two companions. But in the Bible history series, they have Sarah falling or following from afar and here's Sarah she winds up on Mount Moriah and she sees her husband about to kill her son and she's thinking the old man's gone nuts she would have turned him into the ancient version of social services for child abuse and wicked men have gone so far as to accuse God of cosmic child abuse What's reality, however, is that Jesus is in full sympathy with his father. And so is Isaac. Remember what it says in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12? Abraham received a promise. He said, in your seed, Isaac, all the world will be blessed. But it also says in Genesis, chapter 22, that when God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son in his mind. His son was dead. And in his mind, he knew that in order for God to keep his promise, he would have to bring his dead son back to life. Isaac wasn't trying to squirm off the altar. And neither was Jesus. He's a willing sacrifice. And in verse 37, it says, And Jesus cried out with a loud voice. We know from the other gospel that when he cries in the loud voice, he says those words, Tetelestai, it is finished. We also know that he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit Jesus cried out, it says in verse 37, with a loud voice and breathed his last. That expression, breathed his last, is one single Greek word in the original language. It's a compound word. Exe, out. 
Nusen, breathe. Literally, it means he breathed out. We might even use the word exhale. He exhales. The breath of life is gone and he is really dead. It's not fake. It's not swoon. It isn't that he's lost consciousness. The Savior is dead. 1.78 deaths take place every second. 107 deaths take place every minute. 6,390 deaths take place every hour. 153,000 deaths take place every year. Or 153,000 deaths per day. 56 million deaths per year. 3.9 billion deaths per average lifetime. That's 70 years. And so if you're past 70, you're on borrowed time. We're going to do an exercise. Do it sort of subtly. Just do it sort of casually. Just do it sort of nonchalantly. But look to the person to your right and look to the person to your left, look around you because every single person you're looking at is going to die. <laughs> Apart from the second coming of Jesus and that glorious rapture that I believe could in fact take place in our lifetime. But barring that, each and every one of you will have the sad and difficult experience of burying each other. About two-thirds of the deaths are taking place in Asia. A little less than one-sixth in Europe. One-tenth in Africa. One-twelfth in the Western Hemisphere. There are three births per second. Between 100 and 115 million babies are born every year. About three-fifths of those births are taking place in Asia. One-eighth in Europe. In America, about one-tenth. And statistically, a child under five dies every second. Of malnutrition because he or she is undernourished or malnourished, they'll starve to death. This is six million children per year, and it accounts for more than half of every single child who will die. Death will happen. Some of you know of a man named William Sidney Porter. You might be more familiar with his pen name, O. Henry. When he was dying, he said, Turn up the lights. Turn up the lights. I don't want to go home in the dark. Goethe, while fading away, whispered his famous last words, Mir Licht, Mir Licht, more light, more light. Light. Voltaire on his deathbed addressed his doctor. He said, I'm abandoned by God and man. I will give you half of what I'm worth if you'll give me six months life. And the doctor said, sir, you can't live six weeks. You probably can't live six days. I doubt that you will live six hours. Voltaire replied, then I shall go to hell and you will go with me. In a few moments, he was dead. 
Contrast that with Francis Havergal, the songwriter who lived and moved, was constantly in the word of God. The word of God was her constant companion. On the last day of her life, she asked a friend to read from the 42nd chapter of Isaiah. And he read the first verse and the second verse and the third verse and the fourth verse and the fifth verse. He said, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and I will hold your hand and I will keep you. Miss Havergal said, stop. And then she whispered. Called. Held. Kept. I can go home with that. And that's exactly what she did. She went home. David Hume, the philosopher and skeptic, he not only lost his early Christian faith, but he felt compelled to lead others down that road. He convinced his own mother that the Bible was a myth, that the New Testament wasn't true, that the story of the gospel wasn't true, and the resurrection wasn't true. And the story is told that on her deathbed, she called her noted son to her bedside, and she said, you've taken away my faith, and you haven't given me anything else in return. That's what people do. Who suggests to you that the Bible isn't true and that Jesus Christ isn't Lord? William Barclay wrote, The resurrection proves that life is stronger than death, and if Jesus had died never to rise again, it would have proved that death could take the loveliest and the best life that ever lived and finally break it. But it's not true. Jesus will rise from the dead. I know it's not Easter yet, but I I just need to let you know that he's alive. Now, a lot of people might show up on Resurrection Sunday looking clueless. But, and I'm even giving you permission. You don't have to keep his resurrection a secret between now and then. He will rise. Proving once and for all that life really is stronger than death. Death never seems so strong than when you're with it. But I'm here to tell you that every single person, every mother, every father, every brother, every sister, every son, every daughter, Every single person will come back to life. You know how I know that? Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he that believes in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me will never die. And Jesus said in John chapter 5, and this is amazing. He says in John chapter 5, Verse 24, 
Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. And then he says, most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. I guarantee you it's going to happen. I guarantee you, each and every person will one day wake up and understand that everything that the Bible said is true. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that Jesus was a willing sacrifice. That the reoccurring message of the Bible is that the just will suffer. The unjust will suffer for the just. The wicked will receive cleansing because the pure will be punished. Lord, how is that even possible? We know how it's possible. Lord... Jesus paid the price that we deserve to pay and experienced the death that we all justly deserve. And Lord, I just pray that for each and every person within the sound of my voice, that they will answer the two questions that are so important. Are you a sinner? If the answer is yes, then the next question is, do you want forgiveness? And if the answer is yes, Lord, I pray that that person would bow their head and their heart and that they would hear you. Lord, I pray that you would extend the invitation of love to them. Lord, I pray that you would remind them that Jesus loves them so much and that he died for their sin and that he rose from the dead for their justification so they could experience life and hope and love and eternity. Proving that the resurrection of life is stronger than death. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.